Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community, brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient, advocate, and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. D- oh, yes. Uh, wow. Okay. Big decision day for Amy Board over there. <laughs> On today's show, we are joined by... Kaz, Cassandra Campos McDonald. You've heard her here on Bloodstream. You've heard her on the Pain Podcast. She's a blogger. She's a pastor. She's a she's an everything. Yes, she is. She gives us the latest in her pain and mental health journey. Since she last spoke with us, she has had some pretty monumental discoveries mm-hmm. and steps forward in her journey, which she was so generous in reaching out to say, I'd be happy to share them if you think the listeners would like to hear about it. And we said, oh, absolutely. Uh, we'd yeah. like to hear about it. No doubt they would too. That is today. So you're going to hear from Kaz in a little bit, as well as from Lawrence Woolard, who again has been on this show and is the writer and host of the Global Hemophilia Report, had a chance to sit down with him while we were in Houston, Texas for the NHF BDC. That interview is coming up in a little bit, as is the latest from The Well, the well. brought to you by Jessica Lauren Richmond, that, all that, and more is coming up on today's episode. Welcome to Bloodstream. Listeners, as always, thank you for joining Patrick and I here on Bloodstream. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Such a good idea. Episode of Bloodstream can also be listened to and shared directly from the Bloodstream Media Facebook page. Directly. You don't have to go anywhere. Which is nuts. And as always, if you've got suggestions for topics or guests, or if you have questions for Patrick or myself, mm. ping us on social media or email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Mm. And we're always, always casting. Casting. Always casting. So if you would like to share your story or just interested, want to hear about some of the opportunities, email us at mailbag. At Bloodstream Media Doug. <laughs> there, I think they got the idea there. But the, you know, it's true. Even if you don't, if you just want to know what the yeah. opportunities are, yeah. like how so do you, you know like, if you're a fit about or something yep, if yep. you don't know what they are? Listeners, I do also want to remind you, as I always do it about this time, that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Takeda. Yes, that's right. Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. Amy Board? So do I. Oh my gosh. And they are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. It's not a fussy thing. It's a simple thing. Bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. All right. We had a fun show today. So we are, we got Kaz, we got Lawrence, we got The Well. The Well. I feel like we need to just get into it, Amy Boards. Anything you want to say to the listeners up top? Not really. I mean, I, I guess I just want to say to the listeners that I'm finally in the club. I finally have medicine that's in my refrigerator injectables i have my migraine medicine in the refrigerator i put it in today and i just want you to know bleeding disorder community which i have been with y'all for over a decade and i love you so much you were you were the ones that i thought of i was like yes i'm a part of the group i might get sued by hipaa i don't know how it works but literally earlier amy and i were comparing infusion site stuff and it was a moment of bonding yeah. that only us here yeah. at Believe Limited Bloodstream Media yeah. and the Bleeding Disorders community can really appreciate. I inject an antibody. <laughs> Whatever. Said with the casual cool of someone who knows. 
Oh, that's pretty great. So, yes, welcome to the club. We are so happy to have you. We're going to have a committee, new committee signups are, are yeah. starting soon. So, you know, we got a lot yeah. of stuff in the club going on. I might on. share my story on bleedingdisorders.com. We'd love... <laughs> JK, JK, everybody, my blood clots. Wah, wah. Uh, maybe we can, we can create a tab. <laughs> We'll create a tab. Oh, look, but speaking of pain, wherever on your journey you may yes, be. Yes, that's true. But speaking of pain, I've you know dealt with migraine pain, and so let's talk to Kaz about her pain because her, she is so articulate and wonderful. That is a great point. So we will get to that right after this quick break. This next segment is brought to you by Genentech. Genentech is a leading biotech company that has built a strong partnership with the Hemophilia A community through continued support and innovation. They have created a different hemophilia A treatment that you might want to learn more about. To read about the efficacy and safety profile of this treatment, visit www.treathemophilia.com. I'm Kaz, and I am the mother of two sons with severe hemophilia A and inhibitors. I have a journey that, along with bleeding, goes with chronic pain and depression and anxiety. And I have been a contributor to the pain podcast and talked a lot very openly about my issues with chronic pain that I have in my neck and my back. And it's been going on for many years. And I had a pain doctor, a specialist for about 10 years. And this all happened during COVID. So everything was weird during COVID, we know. And I was at a point where I just felt like I was going crazy with my pain. I asked what other interventions can we do? These injections aren't working. And the short story is that I feel like they gave up on me and just threw medication at me. And I have been a longtime user of opioids, Dilaudid and some other things, to the point where I was taking them scheduled throughout the day to function. And I mean, I could drive, I could work. It was I needed to have those medications in me so that I could do the things I needed to do. But then I started feeling like, I think that my pain is getting worse with these meds. And I thought I was going crazy. I finally reached out to get a second opinion. And getting a second opinion for anything is really hard because you have to start all over. And it's like, is it worth it? But I'm so glad I did. I found a new doctor. And he said, you know, here are some things that we can try. And for the first time in years, I'm like, okay, this guy is seeing me and listening to me. But he said, as for your medication, you have to be off of all of that because I will not monitor or regulate those meds. They're too strong. So here I was, what do I do? So I go to my old pain doctor and say, hey, I got to get off these meds. I'm seeing this new interventional guy. And he was all on board with that. His response to me in getting off these high power pain meds was, well, take half, go a few days, then take a little bit less. And that was it. There was no plan. There was no, this is how you do it step by step. And I began to slowly get off these meds and it was not easy. Oh my goodness. I had no idea how difficult it would be. But I felt like my pain is getting worse. It felt more intense than it ever had. And that's when I knew I need to get off of all this stuff to start over. And then I realized my depression was really wreaking havoc on me. And I thought, surely it has to be the meds or something, but it was different. And I had been on the same medication for depression for a long time and thought maybe I need something different. And my therapist said, you know, Cassandra, 
I think it's time. But I got to the point where I said in my appointment with her, gosh, I just wish I could go somewhere for a few days and get this ironed out. Full disclosure, I was having suicidal ideations. My mind was not, it was just not good. So I checked myself into a facility for about a week and came out thinking, okay, I'm feeling a little better, but that didn't last very long. When I got out of that center, I was off all of my meds, all of my pain meds, nothing was in my body. And then finally got help with a new psychiatrist who I'm still working with because my meds still aren't quite right. So this has been a couple of months. It takes time for these things to work out. But then my therapist said, Cassandra, it really sounds like you're dealing with post-acute withdrawal syndrome. And I'm like, what? And they call it pause. See, post-acute withdrawal syndrome is one of those things that that people think heroin addicts or people that are taking drugs illegally off the street, that they're the ones who go and dry out and get sober, that they deal with that. But then there's people like me who take meds per the doctor's orders, even though they're really high powered stuff that you need, you still have that withdrawal, even though I thought I didn't have the shakes and all these weird things because I was the way I was doing it. But a couple of weeks ago, I had a horrible week and I thought, what is wrong with me? And then I realized it was truly this pause stuff. Like I would be in the recliner and I would see that I need to go clean up the kitchen and I just could not get up. And it felt like lead in my feet. And when I am at the worst of my depression, like a lot of people can get, For me, it feels like I'm in this deep pit with this heavy, cold quilt, you know, this heavy blanket over me, and I can't move and get out. For me, with pause, it's like it, it doesn't feel like a quilt. It feels like this heavy coat is on you that you can sort of move, but not really. And it just sort of stifles you. Yet when you see me in the world, because I'm a pastor, I go to church, I do my thing, I preach, I do all this stuff with my congregation and my family. Most people would never know it because I'm very high functioning. This thing about pause opened my eyes and helped me to not feel so crazy. But it just goes to show that if we don't pay attention to this mental health business, right? What is going to happen? You know, what would have happened? I hate to think if I had not said anything and really had, because I started to have a plan and I've never done that. And that's not a good thing. A plan to like, just say, I'm done with everything. And it's kind of scary even just to say out loud, if I had gone and had to get my gallbladder out and that would be okay. Why is it not okay for us to say, hey, I'm raising this big old white flag and I need medical help because my mental health is suffering and I'm gonna go in the hospital to take care of it. Why is there such a stigma to that? And so if there's anything that someone is listening today that, that can take away from that is that if you need extra help, you need to get it and not be afraid or feel like you're less than because I don't feel less than from all of this. It just is really brought to light for me that we have this shame about going in or even saying, I see a psychiatrist. We're a little bit better about saying we go to therapists, but when it comes to psychiatrist or hospital for mental health, boy, she's really nuts or there's really a problem there. And why do we do that? Getting off all this medication has been very freeing. Now, I know that people that live with chronic pain, some could never probably do that. I get it. But man, I have seen how 
there are some of these doctors and types of thought, we're gonna throw meds at them, they'll feel better and we'll move on. There's nothing else I can do, let's go on to the next person. Or you have these other doctors like my new guy who's like, no, I think there's some interventions we can do. And so I'm getting ready to have the first of two ablations in my neck. They never talked about that at the other guy before. And so I'm glad that there's some hope, but sometimes in order for us to have hope for something better for ourselves, we have to step outside of the box. It's a little scary and say, yeah, I need to go somewhere else. I need another opinion. That to me is the scariest part. And sometimes it takes a third opinion. But for me, I'm glad I did that. And I hope that people out there that are struggling and are just doped up on meds, because sometimes you feel that way. And I'm just speaking for myself, but getting off of it again, it's been hard. There's days I wish I had something, but more days than not, I'm not missing it as much. Yes, I'm still in pain, but it's bearable. And I'm looking forward to what this next intervention is gonna do for me. Hi, I'm Mel Forrest, the host of The Pain Pod. We all know that pain is a part of life, but did you know that almost 50 million Americans are dealing with chronic pain? This begs the question, what do we know and understand about pain? On The Pain Pod, we explore this and other pain-related questions by talking with patients, clinicians, and experts about what it's like to manage, treat, and live with chronic pain. So if you're one of those 50 million people who experience chronic pain or just have an interest in learning more about pain, you can find The Pain Pod wherever you listen to podcasts and on bloodstreammedia.com. Or just click on the link in the show notes. And I promise it won't be painful. If you have sickle cell disease, how often do painful crises have you visiting the doctor? Pfizer is now enrolling a research study of an investigational medicine that may help prevent pain crises caused by sickle cell disease. If you have seen a healthcare provider for two or ten sickle cell crises in the past year, you may be able to participate. To speak with the study team, visit clinicaltrialscd.com. With your help, we can pursue new treatment options for sickle cell disease. Learn more at clinicaltrialscd.com or click the link in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Cassandra Campos McDonald, for your transparency, your generosity, your attention to yourself, and how much you care about the community. Uh, As Kaz is a regular blogger uh, for Hemophilia News Today, she has blogs on her own website. As mentioned, she's been a part of the Pain Podcast. So go check out her other content if you resonated with what she had to share with us today. And again, Kaz, a big Thank you, Amy. I tremendously respect and admire that woman. Yes. And it was just lovely for her to like reach out and be proactive about it and be like, do you think this would be? I was very touched sincerely by that. Yes. And And, felt trusted. And we felt too, listeners, dear listeners, that, you know, you would like and would get something out of her story and her updates. So anyway. 100%. 100%. So we'll move now, uh, or in a moment anyway, into my conversation with Lawrence from the NHF BDC. But uh, Amy Board, is there anything you want to tell us before we get to that? Hey, the Bloodstream Podcast is brought to you in part by a new educational gene therapy resource from CSL Bearing called 
heme evolution. As gene therapy research continues for people living with hemophilia B, Mm -hmm. CSL Baring has developed an educational website called Heme Evolution that allows visitors to explore the advancing science around gene therapy and the potential to address unmet needs in some people with this condition. Mm -hmm. Gene therapy is an innovative approach to treatment for a medical condition by introducing a new fully functioning Uh or working gene into the body or by turning off or changing the gene that is causing the condition. For people with hemophilia B, gene therapy has the potential to sustain blood clotting ability. To learn more, check out www.hemevolution.com. Thank you again to CSL Bearing, and remember to check out www.hemevolution.com by clicking on that link in the program notes. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, CSL. And here is Lawrence. All right, I'm here with Lawrence. We're hanging out here in my hotel room at the Hilton Americas in Houston during NHS Bleeding Disorders Conference. Lawrence, thanks for joining me on Bloodstream today. Thanks so much, Patrick, and what hotel room it is. And it's so special. <laughs> Look at this wall over here. Look at all those colors on it. And looks really funky. A great view of not the rooftop of a less smaller <laughs> building. Not, not much to look at. You know, Josh has an all-time hotel room view. I was in his room last night and it's like the mo- the best hotel room view I've seen in years. This is not quite that, but that's not why we're here. We're here because it's the Bleeding Disorders Conference. Your first time though coming to the NHFBDC, right? It is. It's the first time at the event, but also my first time in Houston and what an absolute pleasure it is. So. Yeah. Highlights thus far, a couple few days in. We're recording this on, what is it, Friday of the conference, about 11 a.m. local time. So, so far, what are some of the highlights? Well, I think firstly, in terms of actually Houston, <laughs> uh, it's still amazing me every time I come to the States how big everything is. Yes. Yeah, so Houston and Texas in particular, I know. I know I've said that to you before. I just have to emphasize again, not everywhere in the States is quite this big. <laughs> the roads are glorious. The roads are absolutely glorious. The roads, so. the tables, the hallways, <laughs> oh, yeah. the ceilings, everything. But not the coffee. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> You're not liking the coffee so far. This is a bugaboo for you, I've it noted really, today. It really, even though our, our spirits aren't very good at coffee either. No. But it's the milk. What's up with these, like, these cream Oh, we're very, milk. I don't know. It's just, you know. What are you, what in the UK when you have coffee? What's it generally out? Milk? What, what else do you have next to it? Cream? You don't have cream? No. I mean, there's all sorts now, right? Lacto-free milk, soya, almond, oat milk. Yeah, cashew milk. (laughs) Yeah, coconut milk. You name it. So, yeah. You name it, they milk it. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, man, you should copyright that phrase. You know, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. All right, so the coffee stinks, but you love the roads. Anything about the conference itself Yeah, let's get to that. Yeah, no, honestly, it's been really good. And I think, for me, it's super important to sort of embed myself within that kind of US community context. Why Why is that? Just to understand actually and just kind of see some of those I think one cultural differences but two actually just hear what community members are speaking about what some of the kind of the real challenges are at the moment I think I was in a health equity session yesterday Mm. which was really fascinating hearing from some community members just some of their individual challenges particularly from a few female members of the community spoke up particularly around some of the gender bias some of the confrontations that they've had with clinical professionals around their Mm. diagnosis but also again just putting into context the sort of socioeconomic influences and conditions and what you know and how they underpin health outcomes Mm. and again what is a community what is nhf what is a u.s community uh, are you know can can 
the community do collectively to address some of these challenges. Yeah. But it's hard, Patrick. I think that's actually oh, yeah. that's what came out of the session. You know, it isn't one single answer. It's not it's not simple. No, you know, again, no. this is it's multifactorial and um I think just requires leadership and you know, people up the top, you know, really kind of sponsoring these kind of big programs of work you know this is system level thinking yeah yeah and prioritizing the highest needs definitely um for you know we have listeners around the world but the majority of our listeners are u.s based many i'm sure have attended attended either the bdc or hfa's national meeting or their local u.s chapter member organization affiliate meetings can you give us a little bit of con again you've only been here a few days but based on what you've observed and taken in thus far how does a meeting like this compare to say the ehc's meeting or a meeting that the uk hemophilia society may have for patients and families give us a little bit of comparison if you could just to help us understand yeah definitely well naturally size I mean, everything, you know, everything is much bigger. And in terms of obviously the audience size as well, but uh, obviously for, for being, uh, you know, from the UK and, and, and sort of, you know, uh, European, that that direct to patient marketing, yeah. you know, is always, even Straight the times, always, <laughs> even obviously I've been to the, you know, I've been fortunate and privileged enough to, to come to the States a few times, but yeah. it particularly within this meeting, you know, it's, it's still sort of kind of hits me really, yeah. you know, particularly in terms of the stands within the exhibition hall, which is really colorful. And yeah. there's some, <laughs> and there's some it really, is colorful. it really is colorful. And there's some super cool activities for yeah. some of the younger kids and the families which yeah. i absolutely love and i think it's just a really awesome vibe yeah you know i think just the ability to you know see people coming together again it's really um, visceral yes um but i think you know i i think it's because of obviously how in the US, in terms of treatment access, mm-hmm. you know, obviously being on an insurance-based system, it's obviously very different right. for Europeans like myself. I think, again, it always seems quite a topical issue. And I think um, also, I, I was in, a, a, again, a, a gene therapy and, and a novel therapeutic session yesterday, and okay. they were actually looking at the availability of products. I mean, it was upwards of 30. Yeah, it's a lot. You know, for, for for factor eight, and then you know, obviously less for factor nine, but, but still, still numerous. Yeah, yeah, you know, from the days of just having one product. So, just even contemplating for community members in the US that level of choice, yes, and how they're making an informed decision about which product is right for them, while yeah. also thinking about you know, their insurance company and actually what product they can get access to. Right. I think for me, again, from a European perspective is just, you know, is is fascinating considering if I think for the UK, we're on a tender-based system and we only have availability of a certain, you know, certain amount of, of products that... Based on the contracts that the government exa- makes, right? Exactly that. Yeah. yeah. I think even for haemophilia, right, I think it's upwards of four or five mm. products. So, yeah, so not, not it's a 20 com- plus. Yeah, yeah. right. It can, it's, you know, it's a completely different context. So I think that's absolutely fascinating when, you, when you're in this setting. Yeah, certainly. And then, of course, you know, whether UK, uh, America, when we compare the availability of products anywhere in the world for haemophilia to other disease states where you know, 90% plus, 95% is the number that was quoted, you know, most most often, at least at the last few years, 
don't have in this country what the FDA's approval is sort of the before after a drug is you know available commercially for patients in the United States. There are 95% of rare diseases in the United States don't have a single FDA drug approved. And to your point, we've got dozens. So we're a very privileged community, especially those of us that live in the United States and even and in the UK as well, where we, you know, you don't have necessarily all the same kinds of access. But when we compare it to our blood brothers, you know, in places like Nepal or, you know, in uh, Egypt, or it's a much, much different picture, as we both know. But also, Patrick, I think hearing about some of the experiences of members in more sort of rural settings. Yeah, that's too. Yeah. I mean, it sounds uh, from what I perceive, Patrick, honestly, it sounds if it, you know, like the the examples and case studies from the developing world. Yeah, it, absolutely. And, and taking another step further, Puerto Rico is a part of the United States, and Puerto Rico has been hit by natural disasters on numerous occasions over the last number of years. And that's part of this country. And yeah. the care there and the availability of treatment to begin with, let alone when natural disaster puts the country into turmoil, uh, we have to care and be responsive to folks there, folks in rural communities, as much as we are anywhere else in the United States or the world. Definitely. So I'm glad I, I'm, I'm glad that struck you. I imagine it's a, a bit similar to in the UK, that the, the patients who are further out from the comprehensive care centers and who are not as connected to their centers or the advocacy organizations, likewise have outcomes that are, are similar to the rural American population. Would you say that's true or do you see a difference? I think, obviously, I think for me, Patrick, it's quite hard to answer without having the sort of, you know, referring to the evidence base. I mean, anecdotally, sure. in terms of engagement, yeah. totally, you know, right. I, I completely align with that. I think, you know, I think one of the previous meetings, actually it might have been pre-COVID, you know, meeting a guy who never, never knew any of that advocacy community even existed but you know mm. was told about it through his clinical center so okay. i think um uh you know i think in the in the uk i think in europe but actually even came up in the health equity session yesterday looking at the evidence around postcode you know we refer to it yes. as a postcode lottery yeah yeah and that level of provision and care that you receive solely based on where you live right yeah. and it's unfair it totally Patrick, you know it is unfair but that's why you need strong advocacy i think i was just going to say two other points i think that have so far come through in the meeting i think one obviously we had the recent announcement about the first gene therapy being approved yeah. by the EMA. Yeah, I think it was what and yesterday yeah, it's a couple just, of days ago yeah. right so clearly gene therapies you know, a hot topic yes. at conference. And I know there's some more sessions on innovative technologies today. Certainly, yeah. And lastly, just about the opening ceremony. Yeah. Again, that's a bit of a spectacle what? for a oh, European. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, what did you think? Yeah, Len Valentino in his red he jacket. Cr- and crushed it. <laughs> I thought he did great. And Dawn's tribute to Dawn's Val, Val was beautiful. Wow. And you know what? I only had the privilege of meeting Val once. Mm. And uh, just, you know, her, her words, they, you know, they were super impactful. Some of the images of Val. And, yeah. you know, seeing him with other community members that I have relationships with you do as well. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. It was really, it was a 
really sort of touching moment, actually. It's, again, there's someone that not really knowing Val on a personal level. But, yeah. um, but that was, you know, that was great. And as I said, those kind of opening sessions, it's a real spectacle. And I think it's great for some of the young kids that are in the hall. I think it was great for me. I mean, I will say, <laughs> I thought the keynote, uh, I'm blanking on his last name. I should pull it up while we're chatting respectfully. But yeah. JR, the, 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 the keynote speaker, he's a, a veteran who he, he's mentioned had to go through something like 20 different facial or, or plastic surgeries yeah. and you know to, to, to just put it simply his his face in particular but he had third degree burns all over his body from the, the bombings that took place while he was in active duty military at 19 years old he's now a, a, amongst other things a, a motivational speaker he was the keynote last night and i thought he was absolutely extraordinary i was captivated by everything he had to say from the moment he first started lawrence i don't know if you had a similar take but i just found him terribly inspiring yeah definitely and i think you know i think he say this respectfully sort of served mm. his purpose as it were you know he absolutely you know he he really sort of instilled a lot of motivation and 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 you know sort of belief in community members obviously one to maximize their time here while at conference but actually when they go home yeah you know and to continue that advocacy that activism and it's a daily thing and that was something he pointed jr martinez is his name the initials jr martinez he pointed out how every time someone looks at him and processes that his face looks different and he sees it in their eyes he talked about there's that window of opportunity could be triggered could be triggered, but I also have the opportunity to teach people how to interact with me. And he said, I have to do it every day. Every day and yeah. I was thinking, we have to do that too. It's not the same. But with 100%. hemophilia, bleeding disorders, we have to teach people how to interact with us all the time. Advocates, school officials, employers, insurance people, clinicians, all of them. And it can be frustrating and exhausting, which is why you have to have community. You have to have support. You have to have self-care practices to give yourself a break. But as he pointed out, Teaching people how to interact with you when you live with something that sets you apart from the general population, it's just a part of the package. Yeah. And I thought he articulated that so beautifully. Um, I think another point, while, while it's top of mind, Patrick, I, I was in a session again yesterday where we heard um, from some nurse practitioners about some of the mental health needs of their patients, of their individuals that are caring for. And some really, some really dark stories, actually, of how they've been unable to support some of their younger guys to get access to mental health clinics or retreats or, you know, these kind of in-house provisions purely because they have to infuse. uh, infuse. They need to put a needle in their arm to infuse. Unbelievable. And extraordinarily damaging. 100%. And, you know, again, we heard a case of somebody committing, you know, committing suicide because obviously they were unable to get access to that particular service. There's someone trying to get services and couldn't. Couldn't. You know, it's so hard to just get people who are in that position to seek services and for them to then seek services and be denied because, oh, you're bleeding disorder. Like, Unbelievable. It, it's but you just, saw these some a couple of these nurse practitioners. Um, I, unfortunately, I can't remember the center, but if I find out, I'm sure you can put a link in the episode sure, notes. Yeah, let me know. But um, they had actually come together and actually looked to kind of find Good. a solution. One, by doing some research themselves, actually at a statewide level and at a country level to see actually... Are there are other centres experiencing the same issues? Good, and actually, work. that 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 really came through. I think actually, they some um, one of the parts of the research that forty percent of the clinical network weren't aware that I, even this was an issue. Wow. 
So wow. actually, how do they, 40%. yeah, 40%. That's so how do they actually look to address that to ensure that that actually provision is made available for for members of the community that are obviously experiencing mental health crisis? Yeah, for sure. Well, it's great to have you here. I mean, personally, I just, of course, I love seeing you, I love talking about this stuff with you, but I'm glad you're getting to just absorb more of the community here. You'll have touch points for the BDC meeting new people and different people. I know we got a jet now because we both have to head down to the exhibit hall, but thanks for spending a few minutes with us. Listeners, as you well know, you can find Lawrence on the Global Hemophilia Report. He's our writer and host there. Uh, most recent episode on women with hemophilia out now. Phenomenal episode. And coming up very soon will be our next episode with Donna D. McKelly, where the three of us recap essentially the first six episodes of season one. So that'll be coming to you very soon as well over on the Global Hemophilia Report. So Lawrence, thanks for today and thanks for everything you do for the Global Hemophilia Report. Thanks, Patrick. And always thank you for your hospitality and accommodation. And everybody's been super friendly so far. So thank you. Lawrence Willard, that's your writer and host of the Global Hemophilia Report, episodes out every month. The latest on women with hemophilia and the research priorities is a 90-minute, robust, expansive, comprehensive overview and deep dive. A must-listen, y'all. For everyone that is about meet and unmet needs in the bleeding disorders community, that's available right now, globalhemophiliareport.com. Thank you, Lawrence, and thank you, CSL Bearing. Do remember, listeners, to check out www.hemevolution.com evolution.com. You can click on the link in the program notes. All right, listeners, coming up next, it is our latest foray to and from the well, led by none other than Jessica Lauren Richmond. It also brings to mind the different kinds of suffering, right? Because you have the physical suffering, which for chronic illness, for aging is something that is present all of the time. And then there's the question of acute suffering when you are in a dying state, what does that look like? And then there's the layer of existential suffering. What is happening within the mind and the body or the mind and the heart around what the body is experiencing? Because the body has unbelievable intelligence. Your body knows how to die. The body is so, so, so smart but it has the brain to work with. And the brain can think it's smart, but be really not the most smartest can be a bit inefficient. See, the brain can perpetuate suffering beyond physical pain. And generally speaking, one would think that's unideal. Wouldn't one? One would. The hypothesis, some suffering is obligatory. Life is pain, princess. Anyone telling you differently is actually selling you something. But some suffering is chosen willfully. <laughs> And although it might be painful, I want to talk about why. Welcome to the well. We are standing by a wishing well. I was never confirmed. I'm not Catholic, but half my lineage is. I was never a bat mitzvah. I'm not officially a Jewish woman, but half my lineage is Jewish. All this is to say I have learned a bit about prescribed suffering. Suffering can sometimes reveal to us where our value systems are. Right? Where am I placing my energy or my mind or my focus in this moment? Not only can suffering reveal our value systems, sometimes suffering is an essential part of a value system. Such as, in Catholicism, did I do enough suffering to be considered good and worthy? In Judaism, oy vey, it is a blessing to suffer, no? In fitness, no pain, no gain. And a defining part of the value system of Buddhism is that suffering is a choice which is at least sometimes true and, dare I say, helpful to think about a bit more deeply. I do dare. In terms of suffering, it holds so much 
information and so much wisdom and suffering usually comes up in a moment where we feel like we're lacking agency around something. And if we focus on the place where we lack agency, then that is what we continue to experience more of. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say sounds like suffering may be partially a control issue. Heather, whose voice I've been playing for you from the control room here at Bloodstream Media Studios, describes suffering as a lack of agency, a lack of autonomous choice of action. Versus when you can step back for a moment and say, like, where is my agency in this moment where it feels like I have none, right? Where am I placing my energy or my mind or my focus in this moment? Because that's then informing you where you can start asking your community for support to be engaged with the places within yourself that are not suffering. You know, how do I experience more love in this moment when all I can think about is this chronic pain I have? Asking the people that you care for to be with you and being able to witness their actions in support of you. So there's chronic suffering, acute physical suffering of the body. Remember growing teeth when you were, what, four? How old? When do you grow teeth? And then there's existential attention suffering, you know, when it becomes hard to put attention on anything other than pain when it becomes challenging to focus on or put attention to love and support, that kind of suffering is of the mind. Suffering is a state of mind. Suffering is what you let it be. I know people that have, on the universal scale, probably experienced very little what people would consider loss, but to them it's been a tremendous, horrible burden to bear. And suffering is what you make it. Suffering is what you make it. There's... Comparative suffering, for example, which plagues those addicted to social media. Comparative suffering is, as you guessed it, the suffering that comes from comparison. See, the good news for those with control issues, probably not you, is that unlike chronic pain or growing teeth when you're however old you are, comparative suffering is a choice. And in this world, your choices are the one thing you do control. So how do you set yourself up for success when making such a choice? You know, the choice to suffer or not to suffer. I was having a conversation with my mom recently and I said something about how easy life has been. And she's like, why would you say life has been easy? And I said, you know, yes, all of these things happen, but we always had health insurance. You know, we always had a roof over our head. We always had food. We always had a car. We always had clothing. And I don't want to make it sound as Pollyanna as, oh, just count all your blessings. But I mean, it really is. It's like, what do I have versus what I don't have? And yeah, there are trials and there are challenges and there are things that you have to go through, but you're allowed to go through them allowed to go through them. Aha. So here's the thing. Did I do enough suffering to be considered good and worthy? Huh? It is a blessing to suffer. No. What? No pain, no gain. No. Suffering is a choice. Well, maybe not all suffering. Remember growing teeth? But okay, some sufferings though. As Dwayne said, challenges are things you have to go through, but, and more important to put attention to, is the fact that you're allowed to go through them. Through them. Because life is pain, princess, the experience of life is going to include all types of suffering, like Heather said. So when we do have the choice, no reason to spend more time on suffering than necessary. I mean, right? Thank you, Jessica. And remember, listeners, if you enjoyed The Well and you like Jessica, you'll hear her every month on Flow. You'll find new episodes of Flow at bloodstreammedia.com. If you have sickle cell disease, how often do painful crises have you visiting the doctor? Pfizer is now enrolling a research study of an investigational medicine that may help prevent pain crises caused by sickle cell disease. 
If you have seen a healthcare provider for two or ten sickle cell crises in the past year, you may be able to participate. To speak with the study team, visit clinicaltrialscd.com. With your help, we can pursue new treatment options for sickle cell disease. Learn more at clinicaltrialscd.com or click the link in the show notes. Amy Board, this was a fun episode. Yes. We've got our second episode of this month coming up in just another couple of weeks. And what do we have going on in that episode again? Well, I'm going to be in Kenya and Uganda. What? Why? Filming for Save One Life. So I can't wait to so cool. uh, follow. I won't like be on the show, but I'll like, you know, maybe give you a little... You'll maybe give us a little. Maybe a little. Okay. Maybe a little. But what do you have coming up on the show, Patrick well, Jameson? I get to talk to a longtime friend. You're going to hear this next in the interview itself. Um, Annalise Ellis and I went to camp together 150 years ago, and she has von Willebrand disease, as she talks about on the show, and you will hear it coming up. Um, however, it was when she had her first child earlier this year that von Willebrand disease took placement in her life unlike ever before. She reached out to me to say, it colored the entire experience and I want to talk about it. And sort of like with Kaz, when yeah. she reached out, I was like, yeah. you want to just talk to me or do you want to share it like yeah. with the listeners? And yeah. she was like, I'd like to share it with the listeners. So, so cool. that's what she got coming up next time. If you haven't already, subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast. And with that, that is all for this episode. Nice take, Amy Board. Listeners, reminder to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen, anywhere at all. Share this episode with family, friends, colleagues, humans of all kind. Hey, you have a bleeding disorders or a health topic you'd like to hear us discuss more? Mm. Or is there an expert or guest that you're just dying to hear from? Oh. Want to inquire about storytelling or casting opportunities for Bloodstream's podcast? You can do it for podcasts. What? Or for Believe Limited's films. You can do it for films. Wow, so many things. So many things. Email us at meal. <laughs> Email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with Bloodstream Media on social media. We are everywhere. Everywhere. Name Literally it. Literally everywhere. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can follow myself or PJL on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And we would love to hear from you. Bye.